In May of 2000, a police detective named David Brown was responding to a call from a hysterical woman in the guest house suites in Lenexa, Kansas. One of the motel's female guests, a well-educated, attractive, and professional woman in her 30s, was having some sort of a meltdown. Through her tears, she told the detectives that she'd been going through a hard time recently. She'd had a divorce, a job loss, and had met a man online named James Turner. They bonded over their shared love of BDSM, and he invited her to Kansas from her home in Texas, where he promised her sadomasochistic sex and a job. She told Detective Brown that things had gotten violent, way more violent than she bargained for. On May 19th, she said that James called her and told her that he was on his way to the motel. He wanted her waiting for him, naked and kneeling. According to a Vanity Fair article written by David McClinic, she said that as soon as he walked in the door, he was enraged by the fact that she had locked the door. He saw this, she said, as a violation of their slave contract. So he grabbed her by the hair and began whipping her and taking photos of her. She did not want to do this, but he threatened to send her home if she didn't comply with him. She told investigators that she came to Kansas in search of sexual excitement, but this, to her, just felt like abuse. She said, quote, I'm a submissive, not a masochist, end quote. After he left, she went to the front desk and asked to see his registration information. And that's when she found out his real name was John Robinson. What the woman did not know was that Detective Brown had been investigating John Robinson, a married father of four who lived on a nearby farm, for months. In fact, law enforcement had set up surveillance around his house. They believed that he may be involved in multiple cases of missing women, and they didn't want his latest victim to be next. So on June 2nd, after she was moved to a safe location, police arrested John Robinson. He was charged with sexually assaulting the woman at the motel and was stealing $700 worth of sex toys from another recent victim, another woman in her 30s with a master's in clinical psychology. Like John's other victims, he lured her to the same motel with similar promises. On the outside, John Robinson seemed to be just another pudgy, middle-aged man. He was a regular at the Presbyterian Church. He was someone who you'd pass on the street and not look at twice. He lived in Kansas City, where a former Missouri parole officer who investigated John for years told Good Morning America was, quote, the home of Harry Truman, barbecue, and jazz, end quote. But this walking definition for the word nondescript had maintained a double life as a career criminal for decades. He was a con man, an embezzler, and a vicious sexual predator. When police pried open the two yellow 55-gallon barrels on his property and saw the decomposing bodies of two women inside, they knew that he was also something else, a serial killer. For now, until the bodies could be identified, Investigators marked the barrels with a black sharpie. The barrels became unknown one and unknown two. Sadly, the numbers were necessary because there were about to be a lot more bodies. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar.
police were executing a search warrant on John Robinson's home in Lacine, Kansas. This is a quaint little town. Its name, Marais de Signe, is French for Marsh of the Swans. So when a forensic team swarmed in, locals in the farming community were shocked. A forensic examination determined that the body that came out of Unknown One had received a massive blow, probably with a large hammer, to the left side of the head. The blow had been so hard that it drove a circular section of the victim's skull into her brain. She did not seem to have any defensive wounds. So, as with almost all of this killer's victims, it appeared that she had been taken by surprise during the attack. The medical examiner estimated that Unknown One had been dead anywhere from a few months to a year. The victim inside the barrel marked Unknown Two also had died from a blow to the left side of the head. Detectives made another trip across the state line to Missouri, where they cut through a padlock on John's Stormore storage unit. Inside the unit, police found three more barrels. Some of the area was covered in kitty litter in an attempt to disguise the smell. It didn't work. Each barrel contained another decomposing body. One was wearing a California State of Mind t-shirt. When detectives picked up what they believed was a shoe from another barrel, a leg came out with it. Some of the women in the barrels had families who'd been searching for them for years. Others had families with no idea that they were missing at all. But all of the women had one thing in common. Their fates were sealed when they met John Robinson. John Robinson was born in 1943 in Cicero, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago known for being an area of high mob activity. Former FBI criminal profiler John Douglas, who's the real-life detective portrayed in the Netflix series Mindhunter, and Stephen Singular wrote a book called Anyone You Want Me To Be, a story of sex and death on the internet about John Robinson. According to the book, John's father was a machinist who reportedly drank heavily, and his mother was a strict disciplinarian. Still, John made his parents proud as a child. John was an Eagle Scout, and made headlines when he traveled to London and sang at a performance attended by Queen Elizabeth II. And at that same performance, he actually got to go backstage, where he met Judy Garland. After high school, John attended a nearby junior college. His delusions of grandeur started early. He told people that he planned to become a doctor. Instead, he enrolled in a junior college, but dropped out after a couple of years. But he didn't let the fact that he was totally unqualified stop him from claiming to employers and to everyone else that he was a certified X-ray technician. He started working for a hospital in Chicago, but was soon caught stealing. He begged the administration to let him pay the money back, and they apparently did. So he was not charged with embezzlement. This seemed to be the first time that he faced zero consequences for his scams, but it would not be the last. In 1964, John married 21-year-old Nancy Jo Lynch. The couple would go on to have four children, a son named John Jr., twins Christopher and Christine, and a daughter named Kimberly. John earned a reputation as a smooth talker. His co-workers described him as charming, and over the years, he was able to talk his way into a variety of different jobs, none of which he was qualified for. He seemed to have all the right credentials, but if anyone had bothered to check, 
they would have learned that the certificates on John's walls had always been fake. In one of his positions, working for Dr. Wallace Graham, President Truman's personal physician, he became even more brazen. He used the doctor's signature stamp, demanded that patients pay him in cash for x-rays, and then just kept the money. In the end, he stole between $100,000 and $300,000 from the practice. He got caught, and the doctor called the police. In August of 1969, he was found guilty of stealing by means of deceit. But, as with so many red-collar criminals, he did not serve a day behind bars. Instead, he got three years probation. The pattern would continue. John got a job as a systems analyst for Mobile Oil and ended up stealing over 6,000 postage stamps from that company. Again, he was fired and again charged with theft. But he never seemed to get jail time or any real punishment. After a short stint with an insurance company when he stole $5,586, he started getting into the business of investment scams. For these scams, he didn't even have to go into an office. His first victim was a retired school teacher who he stole around $30,000 from in all. He was arrested on a parole violation and sent to jail, but he was released after just a few weeks behind bars. By 1977, the family had relocated to Overland Park, Kansas, and bought a $125,000 home in a quiet little area called Pleasant Valley Farms. John was known as a successful businessman and devoted father of four who was involved in Eagle Scouts. But behind the scenes, he was leading a double life. He was having multiple affairs and looking for a way to indulge his growing hunger for sadomasochistic sex. He started another business called HydroGrow, which claimed to promote hydroponics, a way to grow vegetables indoors. But his real business was printing up promotional materials, promising products and services he couldn't deliver, and taking people's money. In 1977, to promote his company, he actually pulled off a wild scam where he impersonated several different people and wrote fake letters in order to get himself awarded Man of the Year. Essentially, he faked everything and nominated himself. He ended up getting a plaque from city officials. But in the end, it backfired. A newspaper article revealed how he took advantage of a nonprofit organization. The paper also revealed his criminal background. The few times he did try to go legit, like the time he got a job with Guy's Foods, he was soon back to his old tricks. John would invent fake employees, pay them, and then pocket the money himself. He would also create dummy corporate accounts to sash cash in. At some point, according to the book, he started having an affair with one of the secretaries at work. But this came to a nasty conclusion when his lover gave John an ultimatum. Either he leave his wife or she would tell the boss that he'd been taking company money to basically pay for an apartment for them to have sex in. John refused to leave his wife, so his lover told the boss, and John was arrested and convicted in 1981 of stealing. He received 60 days, shock time, in jail, and was ordered to make restitution. And this time, for once, he actually did end up repaying the company around 41 of the 50,000 that he'd stolen. This would be the last known time that a woman would threaten to turn him in for fraud and survive. John started another company, which he claimed offered consulting services. In reality, he was just inventing new ways to steal money. Some of John's stories seemed wild, but he was very convincing. 
According to Anyone You Want Me To Be, he convinced people that he funded the Sylvester Stallone movie First Blood. Another time, he told a Nigerian woman that he was an attorney who could represent her in a divorce. He took her money and the title to her car. She ended up still unhappily married. And John was hiding another secret, his involvement with the International Council of Masters, a secret S&M group that started in London in 1921 and was inspired by the teachings of the Marquis de Sade. The description of the meeting sounded like a scene from Eyes Wide Shut. They mostly took place in dungeons. Masters wore purple hooded robes, while slaves wore white, and complete obedience was expected. This is around the time that John Robinson's double life started to become even more extreme. He was using the name Slave Master, convincing women to wear dog collars and to perform sex work for clients in his private life, while making regular appearances at Sunday school. He needed to find an outlet that would allow him to fund his family life and to indulge his need for sadomasochistic sex. So John started up another company and rented an apartment on True Street in what was then a pretty rough neighborhood. John had figured out a way to combine the two things he loved most. He became a pimp. But he didn't tell the women he recruited that he was scouting for sex workers. In 1984... He recruited 19-year-old Paula Godfrey to work at his company. Paula had been an honor student and a talented figure skater in high school. He told Paula that he would provide job training for her and a stipend if she would come to San Antonio. He made it sound like a great and totally legitimate opportunity. So, on the day Paula was due to leave town, John picked her up. Her parents waved goodbye to her on what they thought was her way to the airport, when they hadn't heard from her after a few days, they were frantic. Her dad went to San Antonio himself. He tracked down the hotel where she was meant to be staying and found out that she had never checked in there. So he went back to Kansas City and confronted John. John denied having anything to do with Paula's disappearance. Then Paula's parents got a letter from her, claiming that she was fine but no longer wanted to have anything to do with her family. But her parents didn't believe that the letter was written by her. The signature, they said, was unfamiliar. So they went to the police in Overland Park and voiced their suspicions. But in the end, it seemed like the police believed John. They said they could find no evidence of foul play and ended their missing persons investigation. Later, John found out another way to track down vulnerable victims. He targeted nonprofit organizations and battered women's shelters. Using the name Kansas City Outreach, John would call the local nonprofits and claim that he was helping young mothers in the area get a new start. He said they would be able to live in his duplex and get an $800 per month stipend. One of the workers at the nonprofit got suspicious because she said every time she said that yes, she did have a mother who needed help, John always asked if the baby was black or white. If the child was African American, he cut off contact. This set off alarm bells because they suspected that he could be trying to sell the babies. A medical center eventually put John in touch with Lisa Stacy, a 19-year-old single mother. Lisa was desperate. Her marriage with her husband, Carl, had broken up shortly after the birth of their daughter, Tiffany. Carl had gone back to the Navy and left Lisa and her baby. John introduced himself to her as John Osborne and said that he was a wealthy businessman who wanted to help her. Soon, he took Lisa to the apartment. 
Lisa and her baby, Tiffany, went to see her sister-in-law, Kathy. And Kathy thought that the story about the businessman with a heart of gold sounded too good to be true. Then, Kathy would later tell investigators, John showed up there at her house. He insisted that Lisa and the baby leave with him during a snowstorm. Kathy said that he seemed angry. She said she had a horrible feeling that she may never see Lisa or the baby again. But she felt helpless to stop her. The last time that they would hear from Lisa was later, when she called her mother-in-law, Betsy. She was crying, and Betsy would later tell investigators that Lisa said John had made her sign several pieces of blank paper. She said that he also told her that Betsy wanted to take her baby away. Now, Betsy was shocked. She told Lisa she had no idea what she was talking about, and she warned her not to sign anything. Then they got cut off. The last words that Betsy ever heard from Lisa were, I've got to go, and here they are. Over the years, Betsy would later tell 2020, that scene played in her head over and over. Who were they, and what had they done to Lisa? Lisa's family never saw her or her daughter again. Once again, a woman disappeared without a trace. No word, but also no body and no evidence of foul play. In 1984, John met 21-year-old Teresa Williams at McDonald's. They became lovers, and he moved her into the apartment on Troost Avenue. But soon, she was performing sex work for paying clients. And, she said things started to get more and more extreme. One client, she would later tell investigators, blindfolded her, threw her into a car, and then attached her to a torture rack. Around this time, the FBI had gotten a tip that John had a young girl staying in an apartment rented by him. So, according to court records, they interviewed Teresa Williams. And after the interview, she agreed to testify against John for alleged probation violations. So the federal agents moved her, but John continued to look for her. Once, he reportedly hired a PI and found her. They ended up moving her three different times. She told investigators that she was terrified of John. John was sentenced to seven years in prison, but his attorney appealed the decision, saying that John had not had the ability to confront or cross-examine his accuser, Teresa, and he won. Once again, John escaped any prison time. In May 1987, John was finally convicted on various fraud charges, and he started serving a four-year prison sentence. He was a model inmate. John once again used his chameleon-like charm to completely fool the mental health professionals there. They gave him glowing reviews, saying that he was a devoted father and a, quote, nonviolent person who does not present a threat to society, end quote. John volunteered to work in the prison library, where he helped them with their computer system. He wanted to be in the library for another reason. He was also having an affair with a woman who worked in the library, Beverly Bonner, the wife of prison physician, Dr. William Bonner. In January 1991, John was released on parole. He then went to Missouri to serve another two years for parole violations there. In 1993, he was released again. And in 1994, Beverly Bonner divorced her husband and rekindled her relationship with John. Around that time, she disappeared. Beverly's friends and family never saw her again. 
Over the years, rumors flew about what happened to Beverly. Had she gone abroad, left town to sail around the world with Mr. Wright? But no one knew for sure. In 1994, according to Good Morning America, John met 45-year-old single mother Sheila Faith and her 15-year-old daughter Debbie. Debbie had cerebral palsy and was in a wheelchair. John sweet-talked Sheila and Debbie with promises that he would provide for them financially. So they left their home in Colorado and drove to Kansas City. No one ever saw them again, but their government checks kept coming. For years, John would continue to pick up those checks at a P.O. box. And over the years, investigators say John stole the checks meant for the mom and her disabled daughter that were worth around $80,000. During the 90s, John discovered the internet and this allowed him to have multiple women on the go all the time. In 1999, he offered a slave contract to Isabella Levicka, a 21-year-old who had immigrated from her native Poland with her family to Indiana. In high school, Isabella was a bit of a goth. She wore velvet dresses and black nail polish and had an interest in BDSM and in paganism, according to friends. She met John online. She was intrigued by the prospect of being a submissive, and she wanted to get experience in a career. And like a lot of young women, she wanted to get out of her house in Indiana. She packed her car and headed for Kansas City, telling her family that she had an internship lined up. She was kind of vague about the details, and her family was suspicious, but they felt helpless to stop her. Soon after that, Isabella cut off communication with them. And when her family wrote her emails in Polish, she would only send very brief replies. Frustrated, Isabella's parents drove to Kansas in August, but they didn't find her or her apartment at the address she gave them. They just found a mailboxes, etc. The manager said they could not share information. So, feeling like they hit a dead end, they drove home. Isabella was actually living in Olathe, Kansas. The deal that she struck with John that was laid out in a 100-plus page slave contract was that John would pay for everything and Isabella would service him sexually. She spent her free time in a vampire role-play group and hanging out with some friends that she'd met at a bookstore in Overland Park. She sometimes told people that she was married to an older man, and she wore a ruby engagement ring that John had given her. John seemed aware that he and Isabella made an odd couple, the teen in her black outfits with a dog collar and the pudgy farmer in jeans. He sometimes said that she was his adopted daughter, or... He would say she's a graphic designer who worked for him. Then, around August of 1999, Isabella, like many others before her, disappeared without a trace. When an employee asked John about her, John said that she had been caught smoking marijuana and deported. Just a few weeks later, he met Suzette Troughton online. Suzette was a 27-year-old home care nurse who lived in Michigan and had a passion for BDSM. Her other loves in life were her two Pekingese dogs, Harry and Pika, and her teapot collection. With Suzette, John called himself JR, and he told her that he had an elderly father who needed a nurse. He told Suzette that she could travel around the world with him and care for his sick father on their yacht. If she agreed to relocate to Kansas City, she would get $60,000 a year and an apartment and a car. Suzette needed money for nursing school. So on February 13th, she headed for Kansas with her clothes and, according to Vanity Fair, quote, plus her teapot collection and her two Pekingese dogs, Harry and Pika. She also took along her BDSM equipment 
whips, paddles, canes, collars, and the like, end quote. The man she knew as J.R. installed Suzette at the guest house suites and made arrangements to board her dogs at a local animal shelter. Suzette was also asked to sign a slave contract, and John made his usual request of having her sign blank pages and addressing envelopes to close friends and family. The last time that Suzette's mother talked to her daughter was in the early morning hours of February 29th. According to Vanity Fair, John settled the bill on March 1st. Suzette's mother called John, but he told her that her daughter had run off with someone else. And when she received letters that were signed Suzette, she did not believe that her daughter had written them. According to her court testimony, the letters didn't have Suzette's usual grammatical mistakes. Her family said that they were too perfect. Suzette's family called the Lenexa Police Department and reported her missing. That's when Detective David Brown first heard about the case. And he immediately started looking for Suzette. Finally, it seemed that someone was taking these young women's disappearances seriously. Detective Brown investigated John, saw the long rap sheet, the fact that he had been incarcerated. And soon, law enforcement had assembled a task force that included the FBI. They also contacted a Missouri parole officer named Steve Hames, who had been warning people about John since the 80s. He told investigators about Paula Godfrey, his suspicions that John could have been involved in babyselling, everything. Detective Brown told Suzette's family to start taping their conversations with John. Another friend of Suzette's got involved too. She started talking with John online, building a relationship and hoping that he would give her some clues to Suzette's fate. Suzette's family was adamant about something else too. They said that she would never leave her dogs. Investigators went to animal shelters to ask if anyone remembered two Pekingese dogs being adopted recently. According to John Douglas's book, John had picked up the dogs from the shelter where they had been boarded, then dropped them off near his home. He then called another local shelter to report that the dogs were running loose. The animal shelter picked them up, and they were due to be put down on March 9th. But on March 6th, both dogs were adopted, each by different families. When Suzette's mother found out that Harry and Pika had been rehomed, she has said that she knew in her heart that her daughter was gone. While detectives were building the case, the forensic team was working on identifying the bodies inside the barrels. Forensic testing proved that the bodies inside the barrels found at John's home were Suzette Troughton and Isabella Levicka. Inside John's house, while executing a search warrant, investigators found tons more clues. Suzette's birth certificate and social security card, sheets of blank stationery signed by her, slave contracts for some of the women, and a stun gun. Isabella's Kansas driver's license was there too, along with nude photos of her in bondage positions. The bodies in the storage unit in Raymore were identified as Sheila Faith and her daughter, Debbie, and Beverly Bonner, the prison library worker who'd left her husband for John. It emerged at trial that several of John's friends, acquaintances, and co-workers had been sucked unwittingly into participating in his schemes. For example, a woman who he dated in high school named Barbara Sandre ended up mailing letters for him that he would send her written on different stationery. That way, they would be postmarked from European destinations. John rekindled his romantic relationship with Barbara, 
and she ended up moving from England to Kansas City to be closer to him. John told Barbara that Nancy wasn't his wife. He said she was a mentally unstable former babysitter. And incredibly, Barbara believed him. John was not attractive or wealthy or particularly well-educated, but he had an undoubtable singular talent for convincing vulnerable women to do whatever he wanted. Whenever his stories would stop making sense, he would claim that they were part of his secret government work for the CIA. Barbara said that whenever she questioned something that John asked her to do, he would claim that it was part of his cover for the secret government work he was doing for the CIA. Incredibly, even after the arrest, John's wife and children stood by him. A spokesman for the family issued a statement. It read in part, quote, We have never seen any behavior that would have led us to believe that anything we are now hearing could be possible. While we do not discount the information that has and continues to come to light, we do not know the person whom we have read and heard about on TV. John Robinson is a loving and caring husband and father, end quote. It took a long time for justice to catch up with John, but now he had multiple investigations going on at once. The walls were closing in on him, and there was more horror to come, because detectives had found evidence that led them to believe that John was responsible for the death of Lisa Stacy. But then they wondered, where was baby Tiffany? Back in 1985, John's brother Don and his wife had been struggling with infertility for several years, they told him that they wanted to adopt a baby, and John said that he could help them. So in exchange for a payment of around $5,500, John brought them a baby, who they renamed Heather. To their horror, John's brother Bob and his sister-in-law now realized, and DNA testing would later confirm, that baby Tiffany was their daughter, Heather. According to investigators, the family had had no idea. John had gone all out with that scam, and it was very elaborate. He used a real notary and a judge, and all the adoption certificates looked authentic. John had brought them the baby, probably the same day that he bludgeoned her mother to death with a hammer. The 15-year-old Heather said in interviews that discovering that Uncle John was a serial killer who had murdered her mother and kidnapped her as a baby had shattered her world. In 2002, John stood trial in Kansas for the murders of Suzette, Lisa, and Isabella, along with multiple lesser charges. His trial would be the longest criminal trial in Kansas history to date. His wife Nancy was in court, watching, expressionless, according to those who were there, as John's former lovers testified one by one. When it was Nancy's turn, she told the court that even though his entire existence seemed to be defined by luring women into his orbit, quote, my husband was always home in the evening, end quote. This led to the Kansas City Star nicknaming John an 8 to 5 serial killer. Many people wondered if Nancy, who had a storage unit at the same facility as her husband, may have suspected at some point what John was up to. Others insist that they believe she was simply in extreme denial. We'll never know for sure what was inside her mind, just as, since John has shown himself to be a skilled pathological liar, we will probably never know the truth about what caused him to kill these women. A lot of stories about this case focused on the sadomasochistic sex angle. They talked about fatal sex games and had headlines like Fifty Shades of Black. But John Robinson is a serial killer 
who doesn't seem to fit into any kind of neat category. He definitely had a need for domination and absolute control, both inside and outside of the bedroom. According to Vanity Fair, one of his victims claimed that he pulled out a gun and threatened to blow her brains out. But when he pulled the trigger, she heard a click and realized that the chamber was empty. Then he did something horrifying. John slid the gun down her body and slid the barrel inside her. I'll bet you've never had a blowout, he said. So John fed on his victim's terror, but the forensic evidence points to someone who didn't seem to relish the actual kills. The victims were hit from behind. These were sneak attacks. John seemed to thrive on long, drawn-out torture sessions during sex, but the murders were done quickly. They seemed to be just a means to an end, a way to cover up his frauds and other criminal behavior. Obviously, money was part of it. Over the years, John had stolen Beverly Bonner's alimony checks, worth around $14,000. He also stole the Social Security checks from Sheila and her daughter for at least $80,000. But this wasn't the whole story, because he could have almost certainly stolen from his victims without killing them. And in many cases, he had already stolen from them at the time that he killed them. But we do know from testimony of some of his former lovers those who did make it out alive, that when John felt threatened with exposure, he turned on them with extreme violence. One of them, an African-American woman named Alicia Cox, told investigators that she was involved with John for about two years. He paid her a monthly fee and they had a sexual relationship. In 1998, she said that she wanted John to introduce her to entertainment contacts that he said he had overseas. So he asked for her social security number and had her write letters to her family. But on the day they were due to leave for London, she said that she woke up early, and John got really angry. Then later, he stood her up at the restaurant where they were supposed to meet and never showed up for the trip. Looking back at the details, the power of attorney that he wanted, the trailer hitched to the back of his truck, she said she believed that John was planning to kill her that morning and that for some reason... His plans were disrupted. It's just a theory, but looking at the fact that none of his victims really had defensive wounds, I wonder if he was planning to kill her in her sleep, and waking up early saved her life. John seemed very uncomfortable when women got confrontational. In any case, when the trial finally started, it was a spectacle. At one point, jurors had to watch a 39-minute tape of John having sex with one of his victims. Then they were shown photos of her decomposing corpse. It was jarring. John was convicted of the murders of Suzette and Isabella. He got life in prison for the killing of Lisa Stacy. This was due to a technicality. Lisa was killed during the time period before the state of Kansas brought back the death penalty. John also received a 5 to 20 year prison sentence for interfering with the parental custody of Lisa's baby, 20 and a half years for kidnapping, and seven months for theft. Because the bodies found in the storage unit were across the state line in Missouri, John also faced murder charges there. In a carefully worded plea in October 2003, John basically stated that there was enough to convict him of capital murder for the deaths of Beverly Bonner, Sheila and Debbie Faith, and a woman named Catherine Clampett who had gone missing in 1987, and Paula Godfrey. Neither Catherine, Paula, nor Lisa's remains have ever been found. 
In 2005, after 41 years of marriage, Nancy Robinson filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. In November 2015, the Kansas Supreme Court vacated the Suzette Troughton and Lisa Stacy murder convictions on technicalities, but they upheld the Isabella Levicka conviction. They also upheld John's death sentence. Today, he's on death row in Kansas at the El Dorado Correctional Facility. According to Heavy.com, Heather is married and has become a mother herself. She said that she has not had contact with her biological father, Carl, since she was 18. But according to an interview that she did on Reddit, she said that she had met Lisa's mother, her biological grandmother, and had a good relationship with her before she passed away. Lisa started a podcast and founded an organization called the Lisa Stacy Effect in order, she says, to help find out the truth about her mom. In mugshots posted online, John looks a lot older now. He now looks like someone's grandfather. His bushy gray beard in the mugshots give him a Santa Claus vibe. But perhaps the most terrifying thing of all is that he still looks harmless. Investigators have said that they believe there might be other undiscovered victims and possibly more barrels still out there. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Ah!